Today we have special guest John Hubbard. Uh, John came from the military and a law enforcement family and joined the Army straight out of high school. Served on active duty for 13 years with his first seven years as an infantryman in the 82nd Airborne and with AFRICOM and his final six years in various roles throughout the U.S. Special Operations Command. After the, his military experience, John transitioned uh, and was actually a city cop, a residential home builder, and an uh, operations manager for an exterior remodeling company. So I actually had uh, some good experience managing a, a small business. So while working full-time, John received his MBA from SMU in Dallas, Texas, and he launched his search fund, Blue Cord Capital, in October of 2020 and acquired his current company, Express Trailers, in February of 2021. He currently lives in Tampa, Florida with his wife and two sons, where Express Trailers is based. Thanks for joining us today, John. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So to start off, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what inspired you to, to join the military. Yeah, I mean, it was... Uh... One of those no-brainer things, military family, father was in the military, grew up on military bases. Even if 9-11 hadn't have occurred, I would have joined the military. I had no other plans uh, outside of that. Uh, that's great. And and in terms of what, you know, your experience, obviously, started in Airborne. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of how, how your, your decision making uh, and then then ultimately the decision to, to leave? Yeah, it's, it actually parallels my decision on how I ended up running my own company is I like everyone, I'm sure I meant to do my three years, buy a car, get the GI Bill and get out. Then there's always one more cooler unit with more autonomy and more freedom. So you go to one tryout for a battalion reconnaissance unit. Then you realize that there's another cool recon unit above that. And then all those guys leave and go to selection. And you say, well, that sounds cool. And then the next thing you know, you re-enlisted three times and uh, you eventually realize there's always going to be someone cooler and one more school you could go to. So you have to know when to call it quits. But autonomy and being my own boss was what it was the carrot dangling in front of me that kept me on active duty for 13 years. Yeah. Consistent with my experience, certainly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so so what, what ultimately did did lead the, kind of the final push in, in your decision to, to transition out? Yeah, I, I realized I was getting old. I always wanted to do law enforcement as well. Once my father left the military. Uh, he joined the FBI and just retired from there recently. And then, you know, hit the thing most guys hit, do enough rotations, got banged up and hurt enough, stuck on staff jobs. And then you realize, okay, if, if I'm going to be stuck in an office, I might as well be stuck in a civilian office making a whole lot more money. So I don't want to say I was put out to pasture, but I realized I probably just had staff time left ahead of me. Um, so that's, that's when I decided to pull the plug and get out. That makes sense. And what, what was that initial transition like? What, what, what sort of jobs were you considering? Did you know about entrepreneurship through acquisition at that time? Yeah. So I had a couple of buddies that had gotten out before me, uh, a couple of senior captains that got out, did the whole search fund, traditional, you know, Rice, MBA, Stanford guys, uh, Harvard, School of Business, the, the big search fund, kind of incubator colleges. Wasn't for me. I knew I wanted to be a cop. Uh, plan on going into federal law enforcement, but decided I'd rather choose where I live. So I looked all across the country, narrowed it down to some states, narrowed it down some, to some departments, and then went from there. It was almost like a search fund, finding where I wanted to be a cop. So uh, that's how I ended up as a cop straight out of the military. And then it sounds like pr pretty shortly afterwards, you, you decided to, to go you know, do your MBA and, and start pursuing the small business options. Yeah. I mean, I... I was 34 in the academy. I was probably the oldest guy by 10 years, uh, older than all the guys, my training officers. Uh, and it was just a big adjustment going from, you know, various USASOC units 
as a senior enlisted guy to being a rookie street cop, uh, it was uh, slamming on the brakes. It was very different, very different. Uh, good job, you know, obviously. But if, if I had started earlier in my life, maybe I'd still be a cop. But And then I had my first kid, and I was working midnights in the inner city. And I, I kind of reevaluated and said, what am I doing? Everything I've survived, is this where I'm going to – is this where I'm going to go at yeah. Arlington, Texas? So uh, I left that and uh, really enrolled in the MBA program just to have some sort of forward momentum because I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, and it was tough finding jobs that I wanted to do that they would hire me for, honestly. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about, I mean, your, your decision to go be an ops manager at, at a small business? I, I think it's a it's it's tremendous training for people who ultimately decide to go you know, pursue entrepreneurship with acquisition. We strongly encourage it. Oftentimes, it's to actually get real, real reps uh, in a small business. So, just curious, what, what was your thought process, and, and what what did that look like? You know, finding that job and then and then working in it while you're doing your MBA. Yeah, I mean, I've always surrounded myself with smarter guys than me, so I can use them as a sounding board and kind of piggyback off their success. So, I would look at various jobs I was interviewing, getting offered, and knowing I didn't want to work in traditional corporate America long term but also having, you know, a wife and kids who like to eat food every day. So I need to make some money. You know, I asked my buddies that already bought companies and said, Hey, what would be a better kind of resume builder of bona fides? If you're an investor to give me a bunch of money in a couple of years, working at a smaller family owned business where I get to actually run a business or going and being, you know, a project manager at JP Morgan or going to work for Deloitte or going to be an ops manager at Amazon what's more important for an investor, a big name on the resume or real world experience. And uh, they all hands down said real world experience. Your military background is your resume builder. Now go get some real world experience, you know, running QuickBooks, finding warehouse space, filling workers comp claims, hiring, firing. So uh, it's ultimately what I did for a lot less money. (laughs) (laughs) And and as you look back on that experience, I mean, do do you think it was, those reps were really helpful when you actually stepped into the CEO slot? Or do you think it was more, as you said, a little bit of it, it helped probably on the resume when you were talking to small business owners and, and, and then potentially investors as well? Yeah, it definitely helped with small business owners when I was trying to buy a company. Because the first thing they ask is, well, I appreciate you were a veteran, but do you have any experience in this kind of thing? And you say, actually, yeah, I've ran a small company with 50 employees. And again, the, the, the number one thing I heard from investors is your military time is enough proof that you can lead and you can manage. I'm sure you can figure it out. Um, the biggest thing for me was, you know, after about 60 days in that role with a small company, realizing, okay, I, I don't need an MBA. I probably could be fine with a GED. This is not that hard. These are businesses that a guy started with a truck and one other guy, and it accidentally grew into this $12 million a year business over the last 40 years. It's a, they're all pretty simple business models and pretty simple to run on a day-to-day basis. That experience sort of feed into your desire then during your, I guess during your MBA is really when you launched your search, but can you talk a little bit about that? Kind of what was it that finally got you over the finish line and, and actually launching a search? Yeah. And I guess to back up a little bit, the reason I went to work for that company was because I had decided, okay, let me find one of these companies to buy. So before I do that, let me find one of these companies I can work in that would simulate the company I would buy. So by that point, I already decided this is what I'm going to do post MBA. I'm going to, you know, concentrate in entrepreneurship and strategy while getting my MBA. Um, and I think the big turning point, you know, was 
visiting some companies that other guys I knew through the military had bought and ran, um, seeing how small some of these companies are, but knowing how well they're doing financially blew my mind. And then going and sitting in some of my uh, military friends, MBA classes, they were second year about to finish. And these classes were specifically on ETA search funding. A business owner came in and it was like a live due diligence, you know, shark tank. The students just ripping him apart. Uh, and it really piqued my interest. And again, the whole theme in all of this is I realized this isn't that hard. It's not complicated. Once you've learned some of the, the lingo and jargon and have someone smarter than you send you a financial model worksheet in Excel, you can plug the numbers in and figure it out. Uh, so that was kind of the turning point. Like, you know, if these guys can do it, so can I. Why not me? Yeah. And, and what, what did the actual search process look like for you? Were you, were you local and you, you wanted to stay, you know, within certain geographies? Were you looking all across the U.S.? What, what did that look like? Yeah, so we were still in Texas when I launched it. Uh, we knew we didn't want to stay in Texas just because her family, my wife's family is from Florida. I was stationed down here at uh, Soxent and SoCom for a while, so I knew I loved Florida. So we, much like when I got out of the military and chose where I wanted to be a cop, we picked a city first and then laser focused to search in on just you know two counties really in the entire United States. Wow. And so what, what did the outreach, when you, when you said you focused on those, what, what, what did that look like? Was that going through the yellow pages, finding small businesses, using Google? What, what did that look like in practice? I had an old sergeant major, Tommy Borden, that once said, sometimes being the dumb guy in the room is a benefit because you're, you're too dumb to know that you're dumb. So you ask all the questions, and then you end up being the guy that has all the knowledge. Uh, so, and you know, my sheer ignorance, I got on a site called searchfunder.com and put a post that said, here's my background. I'm looking to buy a business in Tampa or St. Pete, Florida, and I need some money. <laughs> Hit me up. <laughs> and it was, I mean, that simple, you know, 50 emails probably that day came flooding in my inbox. Hey, we love investing in veterans. Hey, we're down in Tampa. Hey, let's get on a phone and call. Uh, and yeah, it was that. And within probably a week, I had my sole investor lined up that I needed. It was also my point of contact for business brokers and stuff. And we were off and running after you know, one blog post more or less. Uh, that's great. And what, what did that look like? You, you went through a brokers then primarily, or did you do any proprietary outreach to owners? So I did through my, my sole investor and partner in the business I have now. Um, you know, he comes from a search fund background, had bought and run several companies in this area on his own. He's also a CPA and a former lawyer uh, here in the area. So businesses, PE firms, family, and, you know, larger firms. He knew all the, the deals, proprietary, off-market kind of stuff. 98% of them were too big for what I was looking for, trying to stay under the $5 million, you know, SBA cap. Um, and then while he was doing that, I was doing, you know, the list of things they tell you not to do during a search fund was almost like my checklist of what to do. So, you know, I was on biz by sell, just calling up brokers and looking at companies and, um, despite what a lot of the guys will tell you, there are some, you, you can find some decent companies on just generic websites like biz by sale. And we actually submitted LOIs on two of them, um, ultimately didn't buy them, but it's, it's not a complete waste of time. So how, how many businesses did you, did you ultimately look at before you found the one that you ended up purchasing? Two LOIs before we submitted LOI for express trailers and, um, 
our contact at the banquet for SBA Loan Live Oak was really good at kind of vetting the deal quickly pre-LOI to tell us whether or not like, hey, this isn't something for us. This isn't a good fit. You know, we're not really looking for this right now. This is also during COVID. So a lot of things banks may have took flyers on financing kind of got put on the back burner. Um, so we were able to cancel out a lot of businesses pre-LOI. And a lot of these size businesses we were looking at, the brokers were willing to give quite a bit of information even without an LOI because these business owners were trying to move these businesses and sell them thinking the bottom is going to fall out because, you know, COVID was going on. Yeah. And just order of magnitude, what, what, what were sort of the size range? You mentioned obviously trying to stay within the, the 5 million, you know, debt cap for the SBA 7A loan, but sort of what, what's EBITDA, what, what revenue ranges were you, were you primarily looking at? Yeah. So with just a single investor, I didn't want anything that was doing less than 500,000 a year in SDE, as long as it was a kind of a smaller lean company that just had an old tired guy that didn't want to expand. There was expansion there and weren't doing any marketing, you know, that has some easy levers to pull to take 500 to 750, 800 in the first year. And then there wasn't just, a, there wasn't a ton to choose from in that range. So, you know, kind of like buying a house, it slowly got bumped up and up and we settled on, you know, let's, let's try to really hone it into 750 K to just under a million in EBITDA, um, staying under that million in EBITDA, keeps you off a lot of the radars from the deals that every other searcher is looking for. Yeah. Yeah. We've certainly seen that as well. It's, it's just under the threshold for, for, you know, small private equity and, and a lot of traditional search. So can you talk a little bit about the diligence process? What did it look like when you actually, you know, walk us through the, you know, reaching out to the owner initially, what, what the, what those initial conversations looked like and then how, how you did the diligence? Yeah. So this was a deal that was, uh, off market, uh, my investor had, I say investor, I should really just call him a partner. My partner had known about the deal a year prior and helped the previous or the, the, the seller kind of package the company and get it ready for sale. And a PE firm was going to buy it and it fell through the 11th hour for the PE firm. Cold feet, didn't want to buy a manufacturing company during COVID. Prices going crazy on you know raw materials. So he sent it to me and said, Hey, I mean, this is probably right when I started the search that there's this one company express trailers for sale. You want to look at it. I briefly looked at the SIM and I was like, yeah, everyone in search fund says don't do manufacturing. So I'm going to pass because they say pass. Uh, about a month later, two LOIs, we had found reasons to kill the two deals. He sent it back to me and said, you want to look at it again? And the more we looked at it, it's like, well, this is, a really strong little company. It makes sense. Send it to the bank. And they said, wow, this is actually a really strong little company. We like it. Let's do it. And then the owner had been, the two owners, one had been absentee for a decade. The other had been absentee for three years. One of the previous owner's sons was now the GM of the place. The ops guy had been there for 27 years. He was their first employee they hired after they, after they bought the company back in 95. And it was, I mean, it was a smooth process, mainly because it was packaged the PE firm was willing to give us their Q of E for dirt cheap because it was just wasting money at that point. So we had a ton of the diligence. Oh, that's nice. so you, you were actually able to piggy, yeah. you were able to piggyback off yeah. some of the diligence. We piggybacked off this nice package that had already been done by a PE firm that had, you know, three interns and two associates that were willing to give it away basically just to make something off of a busted deal. So it was a pretty smooth, uh, process the biggest thing much like most of these deals just working with the owner that at any time 
they could decide they don't want to sell it. And, you know, the fine dance of standing your ground and knowing when to dig in versus not pissing off the guy that really doesn't need to sell it because he's already making tons of money every year. So um, interpersonal relationships ended up being the hardest part of the due diligence process for us and just managing expectations of the owner and, again, knowing when to fight and what to give. Yeah, we always laugh that every deal dies at least three times before it gets done. So, so curious, did you, did you have any moments like that in the diligence or the negotiation process where, where you thought you were done and uh, you're going pencils down? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I don't think you'll ever see this podcast, so I can go ahead and say it, but uh, very stubborn, old, anyone that would meet the owner we bought the company from would say, you know what, just get to know him. He's really a good guy, but it just takes, you know, about three decades to get to know him that well to realize he's a good guy. So it was, it was <laughs> managing large personalities, um, trying to let him know his company is great and valuable and you want it without highlighting the fact that, you know, you've been absentee for three years and you're still making a ton of money. Why are you even selling? And then us having that red flag of he's not even working in the business and he's making a ton of money. Why is he selling? So we almost second guessed ourselves into killing it. Um, and then we had a hiccup where he wanted us to give small equity percentages to the two guys staying, the GM and the ops manager, just to ensure that we would keep them on. And, you know, uh, came from the right place, I guess, in his heart and wanted to make sure they had a job after we left. But, you know, at the same time, we told him, you've owned the company for three decades. How much equity do they currently have? zero. So if you were really that concerned about it, you could have gave him some equity. Um, we managed to work our way through most of it. And towards the end, I think COVID really helped us seal the deal because I think there was just that desire to let me just get out from under this thing before it flops and something crazy happens and we don't have a business anymore. Yeah. No, it's, it's really interesting you say that because I think we see that all the time. I think generally in our experience, searchers underappreciate how emotional a process this is. You know, everyone tries to focus on the numbers and doing, you know, perfect due diligence, all of which is obviously important in acquiring a business. But at the end of the day, this is generally the single most important decision the seller has made in their life, uh, or one of the most important ones, certainly, as well as the single most important decision that you are making uh, at, at this time in your life. So so that's really interesting to hear kind of how you were able to, to work that. Anything else, any other recommendations coming out? I mean, did, do you think your veteran background helped with credibility? Was there anything else that, that you sort of relied on as you were interacting with obviously a much older uh, owner and seller? Yeah. I mean, the veteran thing always helps, especially in these kind of blue collar home service um, industry type businesses, because the owners are nine times out of 10 huge pro veteran guys. Um, honestly, I think my non-traditional kind of background and work history growing up uh, carried probably the most weight with them. I framed houses during the summer growing up, did roofing, dug ditches, you know, worked in the shipyard for the summer before I left for the military, built bikes and off-road trucks. I was enlisted in the military. You know, I didn't show up in a blazer and khakis for our first meeting. Um, you know, ball cap, I have some tattoos. Just knowing that you're buying a basically a welding and fabrication shop looked like you could potentially work in a welding and fabrication shop. Um, and the owner at the very like celebration dinner when we closed the deal said basically, I never wanted to sell to the PE guys anyways, because they 
more or less came in and the loafers and the khakis and the blazers. And one of the first questions they asked was, you know, do you see a way for us to 10 X express trailers? And he's thinking, well, it's a manufacturing company. Yeah. You can 10 X anything. You invest a hundred million dollars and build a new warehouse and get robots in here. I'm sure you can. Or are you going to fire my guys? Like you, nothing you're talking about is what's important to me. Um, so just being, you know, knowing when to dress up and, uh, talk to your investors and when to kind of push your ball cap back on your head and throw in some all shucks and just be a good old boy trying to buy a, a trailer company. So playing the game. Yep, no, absolutely. And obviously, I mean, it's funny, you know, the, the number of hats that you wear as a searcher is, is pretty extraordinary, right? You go from capital raising to, you know, essentially B2B sales to now, now CEO and owner of a company. So understanding, you know, just what you said, you know, understanding kind of the appropriate persona and the appropriate, you know, how to interact in those situations, obviously is critical to do to doing each of those. Well, it sounds like you did a great job with that. And so maybe spend a little time just on the business, you know, what, what you do, what, what you saw that you liked. And, and as you mentioned, traditionally search does kind of, I'll say discourage manufacturing businesses or light manufacturing businesses, but what, what gave you comfort, um, either with the, the revenue profile or the customer set? Yeah. So I think there's a ton of, and I guess you, ha- if you're trying to be so overarching to encompass like the whole nation and every sort of business ever, you have to make some general rules or guys would just be running out there. It's the wild west. You need something to focus in on, but a lot of the kind of overarching search funder rules that get thrown out there are so broad. I think a lot of big businesses get overlooked because yes, we are manufacturing you know, kind of by NAICS code, but really we're a custom fabrication shop. I mean, we have a ton of materials, probably a million dollars in inventory on hand. But as far as heavy equipment goes, we're using welders and saws and, you know, $50,000 of fixed equipment. So while it is manufacturing, we're not, we don't have this massive $500,000 a year CapEx budget because we need giant machines and stuff. We're a little trailer company in Florida making trailers, you know, by hand. Um, so once we kind of adjusted our mindset and said, yes, it's manufacturing, but really it's a custom fabrication made the order shop that helped um, lead time. Anytime you can come into something, it's a pretty expensive product. And I think they were at an eight month lead time and growing when we bought the company um, and just reputation of the company. The more we started talking to guys in the trailer industry, the more, People recognize the oh yeah I know them Express they're down in Florida they make a hell of a trailer um, one of the biggest the largest landscaping company in the country has all their trailers manufactured by Express so a lot of those things start clicking and you're like well this must be there must be something to it if I started seeing them all over Texas while we were still in Texas I'm like look at it this little company out of Clearwater Florida here it is in my neighborhood in Texas so there's something to it and and then just Everyone wants to find any reason to kill a deal. And I kind of took the opposite approach and thought, I mean, we, you could search for three years trying to find the unicorn company. Let's try to find every reason to salvage this deal. And most guys would have looked at it and said, a PE firm backed out on this at the 11th hour. Those guys are much smarter than me. They must have something I don't. But they just, their basic hangup was we can't tell what they're making money off of. They don't have a great way of tracking sales and cost of goods. We don't know what they're making money off of and what they're losing money off of. And the way my simple Arkansas mind reads that is, but they're making money, right? 
So something's working. So as long as I can get in there and find out what they're losing money off of and stop doing that, we're just going to make even more money. Yeah, yeah that's, that's more opportunity than risk, right? Right. So that's that's really what drove us to. Um, and then with the bank and underwriting approving it so fast, I thought, okay, there's something there that these guys see too that they like. So uh, and kind of my mentality, you know, burn the boats. I moved my whole family to Florida before we even finished on the deal. Just with it, I had two phones. My partner said they signed the LOI. And on this phone, I told the realtor, accept the offer in our house, we're moving. So, um, worst that happens, I go bankrupt and start all over. You know, it's not the end of the world. And, and with the business, I mean, it sounds like so with the long lead times, I assume there was pretty nice backlog you were able to look at. Also, is there is there kind of a repeat or reoccurring nature to the business or maintenance streams or anything like that that got you got you more comfort as well? Yeah, so probably th- three years ago when they brought in the previous owners or the, the the second absentee owner's son to be the GM, his mechanical engineering background was working at a big Fortune 50 manufacturing plant, came back to work in the business. Um, you can see the whole customer set change three years ago. You can see the revenue shoot up three years ago, the net profit shoot up three years ago. Um so we thought business just took off. He's a smart kid. Once we got into the business, we realized it was built on a dealer model, which is what 99% of trailer manufacturers are. You make the same stock trailer over and over. You sell it to a dealer at wholesale pricing. They mark it up and sell it. Um, and you're competing with every other trailer manufacturer in the country. Coming from a large manufacturing company that did super custom stuff for corporate accounts, he started targeting those businesses and landed several nationwide corporate companies that did utility repair, underground pipe repair, sold them to municipalities uh, to be emergency response trailers and whatnot. So these were much higher profit, super custom trailers that they usually blanket order for the year every October when they get a new budget. They were still selling a ton of dealer trailers um, at a loss, we found out about a month in once we were able to do a true cost analysis, what it costs to make a trailer. So you're over here selling these trailers for, you know, 45% profit while selling dealer trailers at a 15% loss just to stay in the dealer network. So we came in and within the first 30 days, cut out all the dealers and doubled down on our corporate accounts, which plummeted our lead time back to only like three months, which the corporate accounts loved so they placed more orders because they get more trailers now we went from getting single orders for one fifty thousand dollar trailer to now we're signing production contracts for we just signed one for two and a half million for next year to make 115 trailers for one for one customer so it was all kind of a snowball effect and the, the funniest part is it was all done on their models they already had in place they just weren't using i just plugged in the numbers to their own models and said maybe we should try this and we tried it and it's worked so um trying to think of the book good to great i just brought in had both of the guys read good to great and i said we're going to be the chick-fil-a of trailers we're going to do one thing we're going to do it well we're not delivering trailers anymore we're not selling parts over the counter we're only doing repairs for corporate accounts all this ancillary you know crap you guys have been doing to try to squeeze out a buck we're going to do this one thing better than anybody in the southeast um and it's took off and people have noticed and now we're just a little, you know, cash printing press in middle Clearwater, Florida. <laughs> so I think you brought up two really important 
areas that we that we see a lot, and you see this all the way up to you know multi billion dollar companies not not actually understanding what you know what makes money and what doesn't is is a huge issue. So so you mentioned you used you know their existing models. Can, can you talk a little bit more specifically, like stepping in? How did you decide and how did you realize? Hey, there's a whole segment here that's actually negative margin and, and costing costing the the business money, even apart from the opportunity cost of not servicing the more profitable corporate customers. Yeah. So um, another thing, you know, that scared away the P firm was the cost of goods sold aspect on the P and L. Because what they would basically do is every month just reset cogs to like two hundred fifty thousand dollars as an arbitrary number. You know, they had millions of dollars in retained earnings just sitting in a checking account, and they, you know, the owner told me, "If we don't manage money here, we manage inventory. We buy inventory in bulk. If we can get a cash prompt discount, we buy more. If there's about to be a price increase, we buy more." And they just had you know, a million dollars in just raw material, still aluminum wheels, axles on hand. Um, so you still, you couldn't look on a P&L when the trailer went out and saw, we just sold this trailer and it cost us exactly this much. But on their share drive, they had this 500 cell spreadsheet built where every trailer by size was itemed out. This is how much steel it takes, how many screws it takes, how many gallons of paint it takes. Every component to every trailer, including how many feet of you know wiring at so many cents per feet, it was all there. They had made it 10 years ago. His, his previous life was a cost accountant for a manufacturing company before he bought this business. He just weren't using it. He just kind of went with his gut instead and said, everyone does dealer network, so we have to do dealer network to be competitive. Um, so we took it, had the GM verify it over like a painful month process, make sure this is still how many screws there are per trailer. And then we set it up with some formulas so where we could auto input our steel prices, uh, our aluminum prices, and it would update itself. And then I told the guys, let's stop doing all this wasted market research you're doing on finding out people are selling trailers for. Go to the very end here. This is the profit margin we want. Put it in. It'll reverse engineer the spreadsheet and it'll tell us what we need to sell each trailer for. And some of our smaller trailers cost more than our larger trailers. And then I said, well, then the customer won't buy that. Let the market tell us what to make. If they want to pay more for a smaller trailer, we'll make those. If they don't, they'll buy a bigger trailer. Let's, you know, let's set our endpoint of what we need, what we want to make. And then we'll price the product that way. Um, because obviously with the eight month lead time, customers weren't very price sensitive anyways. I was going to say, when, you, when you've got the backlog like that, yeah. there's a lot you can do. I was gonna say, and we've, one of the things my buddies told me what happened in most searchers and really small companies like this find out is we've raised our prices almost 40% since I bought the company. And we're still taking orders for March of next year right now. Um, so we've been able to, you know, get awesome health insurance, raise rages, buy better equipment, still prices, plywood, you know, prices for commodities are insane right now. Every time we get a price increase, we pass it on to the customer and no one bats an eye. And the first question anyone ever asks is not how much it costs, but it's how early can I get it? How soon can you get it to me? Yeah. And how much of that did you identify in diligence? I realize oftentimes it's hard to because you don't have access to the real data. Did you kind of have a sense of that or, or kind of a, a gut sense? And then once you were in the CEO role and actually you were able to do the real work or what, what did that look like? Yeah, we, we knew there was an opportunity for it just based on the customer concentration, how much volume was going to the dealers 
but how little of their revenue it made up or how little of their profit it made up really. And then we would start asking for invoices for these certain corporate customers and then looking at, okay, well, if they're selling the dealer, this trailer for this much and this corporate customer is buying it for this much, it has some add-ons to it. But I mean, that's almost a hundred percent more than what we're selling it to the dealer for. Either we're really screwing these corporate accounts or these dealers are taking advantage of us. So, I mean, it was the first project we started on day one. It's let's raise prices and let's get rid of the deal. We can't compete. I can't compete with the big techs, you know, $150 million a year trailer companies of the world. Um, so let's figure out what they don't have time to do. And those large companies don't have time to concentrate on the customer as much as we do and spend two weeks doing R&D. If they ever have a problem, they bring it to us. We fix it that day. You know, we're, I don't want to say boutique, but, you know, almost like a VIP concierge level of service for these corporate accounts where if they have a trailer that's out for two days, that might cost them a couple hundred thousand dollars. So, and the large global manufacturers of trailers don't have the time or the desire to do that. The dealers do all their work for them. So, so that's interesting because because that is always one of the concerns with you know even a light manufacturing business. But it sounds like you found one with a really nice some nice niches, right? That, that you're you're able to do things that the the large players can't. And it sounds like it's both customization and kind of level of customer service. Is that is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a ton of engineering that goes into it. The guys take a ton of pride in their work. The guys that work there, just because such a well-known name in like the corporate commercial trailer world. You know, what I tell guys is most trailers are Ford Rangers. Some guys need F-150s and we make F-450s for, you know, we tell people coming off the street and ask to buy a trailer all the time. And we ask them what they're going to use it for and kind of tell them, Hey, it's, you can buy it, but it's not what you need. Like we make tanks that last 20 years and take some abuse. Um, so yeah, knowing what you're good at. And again, the, the big companies just don't have that sort of time or desire to do it. There's probably four companies like us scattered throughout the U.S. You know, they all just kind of stay in their regions because the single most cost when you buy a trailer is freight. So it's also another great thing that regionalizes the trailer um, industry, which kind of insulates you from competition as well. And 30 years of brand brand name to these customers helps a lot, too. Yeah, I think and the last thing on manufacturing I would add is, you know, again, there's always the concern about the China price when it comes to, you know, buying a domestic manufacturer. But when you have freight costs as high as they are, you know, as a percentage of the total, I assume that that essentially addresses that issue, right? Is that how kind of you got comfort with that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when we land a new corporate account, I mean, their fleet manager and one of their other guys is usually coming down to our shop and looking at what we do and sitting down with our guys and saying, what if we did this? Well, what you would really need is a three eighths ramp here. We can move this door back. We can add some extra tubing in the roof so you can have a walkable roof and they need, you know, it's, I told the guys, we we're just talking about in Chicago, you know, we're think of it as like Bugatti. We don't just make cars and put them on a lot. We don't make a trailer until a customer comes in and designs it custom and signs off and gives us a deposit. And then we make it. So that really helps us not get behind trends, get overstocked, waste inventory on something that ends up being not profitable. Um, and yeah, I, I doubt that, you know, leaders, casual moving company is going to send their fleet manager to, to Beijing to, to customize it, you know, seven moving trailers they need. So, um, and the first thing I did was add veteran owned and operated business to our website. And we've landed a couple pretty large contracts just because people see that they want local so they can have their warranty issues addressed. And then they see the veteran thing and say, well, why not? 
And then one last, the, the second point I think you made that I, I'd love to revisit is just is just the strategic decision, you know. And I, I'm I'm a huge believer strategy in many cases is just is deciding what you're not going to do. So it sounds like you went through that exact same exercise after stepping in as CEO. Can you talk a little bit about how you made that decision to kind of really focus the business and then what the reception was? Because that's always I think a concern among among searchers and new CEOs is what you know what the employee base or customer base how they'll respond. Yeah, you know. My kind of throwaway joke is my whole success arc is based off pure laziness. You know, I wanted to get in special operations because when I was in the infantry walking everywhere, I saw them in trucks and I was like, well, I need to get in that unit. I don't have to wear a helmet. I could grow a beard and I can ride in trucks as beats walking. And so I figured, well, I need to buy a company so I can be the boss and pay someone to run it. That way I don't have to actually do any work. That'd be nice. And then, you know, I tell the guys, hey, if we just really focus on only making two products, it's less we have to keep track of. It just makes it easier for us. So the easier we can make our life and the more we can streamline it, the less work we can do, the more money we can make. And it's, it's true to an extent, but also you have to have some sort of strategy behind that. And obviously we did one thing really well and then had a bunch of distract, just distractions, you know, trying to increase the revenue stream, really just taking away from your core competencies. You having to really tell the guys, look, for every five minutes, you sell a part over the counter. For every 10 minutes, you try to sell a guy a set of tires. You add that up over the month. If we can get two extra trailers out, that's an extra hundred thousand dollars for us. Um, and it helped that everyone in the business because they weren't absentee knew the dealers were taking advantage of us and hated the dealers and hated dealing with them. You know, dealers want 90% profit with 10% effort. Um, so, I mean, they were bought bottles of champagne when we canceled the final, the last dealer, because they were just so relieved to be uh, out of that network, out of that, line of business out of that headache. So it was an easy sell for the guys there. And then the next two months bore it out, you know, as you watch the cash in the bank account grow. And then the nice icing on the cake is having these large companies call and be like, Oh wow, your lead time is that low now. So I had to make the decision basically to take 150 trailers off our production board and just tell the dealers you're not getting them anymore and hope that it hope we replace that. And within 30 days, we had replaced it and it exceeded it on trailers that instead of a negative 15% profit margin on a trailer, 45 up to 50. So this, the swing there was, was huge. And I got to sit in my truck on the way home and just take a, a deep breath and say, thank God that worked. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, I mean, it sounds like you've had a tremendous amount of success since you, since you stepped into the CEO role, a any like challenges or, or what, what's been the biggest challenge that, that you found in the business? labor, finding guys, finding good guys to work because, you know, taking sort of the same special operations mentality back. I told the guys, we're not just hiring bodies. We have a reputation. One, all it takes is one of our trailers to go out into the world messed up and our, the reputation is gone. So we'll, we'll be at a yearly time before I just hire 30 random dudes to get us down to 90 days so finding quality guys for a while, they're just finding any applicants and now just finding and holding on to quality guys. Uh, it's helped. We've raised, you know, our shop minimum is 15 bucks an hour. Now, most of our guys are making around 18 or 19. It was like 12, 13 bucks an hour when I took over the company. Uh, we're able to get really awesome health insurance and benefits for the guys. Uh, but now it's just attracting and holding on to pretty in-demand skill set of welders and fabricators. That is one thing, you know, in the military, obviously great leadership and, and management 
training. But one thing, obviously, you know, generally do in the military is is uh, is worry about hiring and firing. So, so how is that, has that been an area that you just got comfort with, or can you talk a little bit about how you've, you know, your perspectives on that have, have evolved as the owner? Yeah, I, I got a pretty good ability to read people. Um, I think I was kind of fine tuned in my time as a cop. It's easy to spot when someone's lying to you. Um, and then also, you know, this industry for a long time was super favorable to the employer. Like you're lucky to have a job come in and work. If you miss work, you're fired. It's swung drastically in the last year and a half. And it's also just not what I believe in. I think that the cost to hire and train someone is way more than the cost to treat someone well, pay them a little more and retain them. So one of the things we focused on big time was getting all the applicants out onto the shop floor to see how we work, to meet the guys, to see how chill of a place it is to work, talk to one or two of our current employees, um, and just, you know, these are good guys. If you come here, they'll take care of you. And when we get good guys, they don't leave. It's just getting those guys in the door to begin with. And especially here in Tampa, we have a huge shipyard. So you can go over there and make a lot of money as a welder. Um, but it's a super hard life, terrible hours. Once we get them in, they stay. It's just just getting them in um, without spending your entire budget on Indeed. But uh, we've done pretty well so far. Once we got our benefits and stuff up to, up to snuff, um, then, and honestly, I don't know if this is going to help any searchers or not, but we canceled all the money we were wasting on our drug testing and stuff, pre-employment. That's one of the first things I canceled. Um, just because if anyone ever gets hurt and files a workers' comp claim, the first thing they do at urgent care is give them a drug test. So my mentality on it was I could care less if you smoked weed yesterday on Sunday. Can you come to work and make a damn good trailer on Monday? So that helped us a lot. And I think you just got to, it's 2021. You got to kind of ditch some of that archaic standard hiring practices. If you want to have any chance recruiting guys, especially in this blue collar, you know, employee pool. So, so on reflection, you know, having been in the seat now close to six months, I mean, what, what recommendations would you make to other veterans who are either deciding to launch a search now or are, you know, in the very early stages of a search? Just just do it. It's you could spend a long time coming up with the perfect name for your search fund, you know, the perfect CRM, making sure you have all the best like data scraping software built so you don't miss a single deal anywhere in North America. And, you know, what is the perfect amount of interns you need to have? And I think it's, you know, one of those things that you just have to do and be prepared to look stupid. And that's the best way you learn. Um, I say that having had a bunch of buddies that already did it. So I had some comfort level there, but I mean, my first phone call I had with a broker was an absolute disaster. He was throwing stuff out. I had no idea what he was talking about. He was asking if I had the money to buy the company. You know, I'm sure I'm, well, I'm sure I can find it and all but hung up on me, but you get better every pitch. It's like cold sales. You get better every pitch. And at the end of the day, again, it, if I can do it, literally any veteran who's been in the military can do it because I am just about as ordinary and average as it comes. So, I think I think you're being very humble in what uh, what you've been able to accomplish. That's great. Uh, so, so, last question, just in terms of if, if it couldn't be the business you own today, either businesses you saw during your search or businesses that you see today as a small business owner. Is there is there one that you would either go start from scratch if you had to, or would go acquire today? On the acquisition side, if 
there were three I wanted. I just could never find any for sale. Uh, Porter potty rentals is just a gold mine. Uh, septic tank and grease trap pumping is a really good one I was looking at just because it's regulated and all restaurants and hospitals and cafeterias are required to have like a hazmat certified company come out and clean their grease traps. Um, they fear, they tend to be fairly expensive though, because of all the heavy equipment and trucks they have. So it's kind of out of my price range. Uh, and then garage door service and repair is actually a really good parts are super cheap. Labor is super cheap and every house has a garage. And if it's broken, that person needs it fixed within the next 24 hours and price isn't a factor. Um, so that was a really good one. But again, most of the ones I saw were a check in a truck or was way out of my price range. Uh, and then for starting a business, if I wasn't so lazy and had the drive to really work, you know, 70, 80 hours in a business and answer phones and stuff, what I learned working at my last company where I was the ops manager doing exterior remodeling, roofs, gutters, windows, doors, if you can find one or two decent guys to do anything home repair and then just answer the phone, be able to quote the job within the next 48 hours, look semi-professional and show up and actually be there when you say you're going to be there, people will pay whatever you quote them just to get the job done. I mean, since I've moved to Florida, I've been trying to fix up this house we bought and I'll call 10 painters, five answer the phone, three schedule an appointment, one shows up. And then after he leaves, he never gets back to me with a quote. So even just middle of the level customer service in any home service business right now, you could be the leader in your area within two or three years. Um, but again, I'm, just, I'm, I'm too lazy for all that right now. I got, <laughs> I got two kids that I love, so... And a great and a great business you're running today. So no, that that, that that's great. I know we we often laugh in in small business land. Oftentimes the competitive advantage is just pick up the phone, right? Do do, do what you're saying you're going to do and do it on time. And you know, yeah. so I agree 100. percent Well, John, look, thank you so much for uh, taking the time today. I'm sure this is going to be incredibly valuable for other veterans. Um, if if we decide, you know, we'd love to check in 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 a year or two and see see how things are progressing. Uh, but uh, thank, thank you again for taking the time. Yeah. And if it's shameless, not plug, but to help guys out, if guys just go to bluecordcapital.com. They can, my email's on there. And I probably talk to two or three searchers a week uh, just because, you know, I guess I'm relatable and people think that if that guy can do it, I can too. So I'm always willing to talk and help anyone out if they have any questions. So I want to see more vets do this. It's a great living. Great. Now I appreciate that. I didn't, didn't want to volunteer you for that, but uh, th thanks so much for, for offering that. That's great. Yeah, no problem. All right. Thanks so much, John. Yeah.